You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. My name is Cheryl, and I'll be reading from Acts chapter 27, verse 39, to Acts chapter 28, verse 10. The Shipwreck Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting their foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Paul on Walter After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us an unusual kindness, for they kindled the fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cool. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a, vi a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or to suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island called, named Publius, who, rece who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put us on board, they put on board whatever we needed. These are the true words of the living God. Oh, okay, another microphone. Hi, good morning. Uh, my name is Eugene, and uh, I'm one of the elders here at the English Church Plant, and uh, I'll be preaching for us today. And um. I ought to just start by doing an introduction and a slight, uh, small confession. I, how many of you know the term Swifty? Show of hands. Yeah. So my my confession is that I learned about the term Swifty only recently. Okay. So this should tell you that I'm not I'm not a Taylor Swift fan, uh, because I've never really you know followed her songs. But my daughters are Swifties, right? And they have glowing things to tell me about Taylor Swift. Her songs are good. She's a wonderful person, right? Um, all, all these things, but 
But truth be told, all, all we see, all we can see is her public persona. It is difficult to see behind the public persona. Closer to home, we, we, we think of people in, in Christian ministry, right? Well-known preachers who preach deep, insightful sermons like Perch, you know? But again, it is difficult to know who they really, really are when the mic is off, when they're off the stage, you know, from Monday to Saturday. How about Paul? Can we really know him? Or do we only see the ministry side of him? So in today's passage, Luke draws back the curtain and invites us to see Paul when he is away from the limelight. He's no longer in the courts of the governors, right? He's nothing more than a prisoner to be conveyed to Rome to appeal to Caesar. Uh, now, last week, uh, we had this wonderful map uh, that was shown. And, uh, you know, Perch brought us through this whole journey. And it sort of ended on a cliffhanger because they had left from Fairhavens towards Phoenix and the storm came. And when the passage ended, they were being driven by the wind. Now, some of us here may be new, so I'm just going to very quickly recap the context of where we are. Now, Acts is actually volume 2 of the Gospel of Luke. Right? Luke and Acts are actually two volumes written by the disciple Luke. Now, who is Luke? Luke is a physician. He is also Paul's traveling companion. And I like to say that Luke is an amateur historian, but he's actually quite, quite professional about it. Now, Luke has written these two volumes, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, to a good friend, to a person called Theophilus. And in his greetings to Theophilus in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, Luke says that he has put together an orderly account. Um, oh, I can't see verse for that. But okay, he has put together all the things that have happened and put together an orderly account um, so that uh, Theophilus would have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught, including how the gospel spread from backwater Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, at the ends of the world. And by God's providence, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts have now come down to us, right, through the ages, so that we too, like Theophilus, might have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught concerning Christianity. Now, Acts has 28 chapters, right? Acts 13 to 21, or about 8 to 9 chapters, covers the missionary journeys of Paul and chronicles the spread of the gospel to the ends of the known world at that time. Cities like Antioch, Galatia, Corinth, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Ephesus. Who knew I could speak so much Greek? But in the last section of Acts, the pace of the narrative slows down significantly. Right? Luke actually dedicates six chapters of Acts, Acts 22 to 28, almost one quarter of the book to this last section of Acts. Acts 22 to 26 stretches over a two-year period where Paul is in prison because the Jewish leaders have brought false charges against him. And Luke, who is Paul's traveling companion since Acts chapter 14, right, and very likely also an eyewitness to everything that is taking place in this last section of Acts, he takes pains to record in detail Paul's defense against the false charges, Paul's conversion to Christianity and Paul's proclamation of the gospel to the Jewish leaders and Roman authorities. Now, it's very important that he does this because the Jewish leaders cannot have the last word on this matter. Right? Where is Paul? He's in prison. He's surrounded by hostile witnesses. Right? They have no reason to put down an account of how Paul defends himself. But Luke 
does this as the only eyewitness there so that Theophilus and us would know the truth about Paul's false arrest and have certainty concerning the facts of the gospel. That's why this last section of Acts is so important. So now this brings us to where we were last week. Right, last week's sermon detailed Paul's sea voyage from Caesarea to Rome, long, difficult, dangerous journey. And when we ended last week, Paul and the other prisoners, the sailors, the soldiers were being driven across the Adriatic Sea and they have just had some food after going without for 14 days. And the verse, the, the, that section ends, right? It says they are so desperate to keep the ship afloat that after eating, they lighten out the ship and they threw out the wheat into the sea. So they are really desperate. They need to keep the ship riding high in the water. And so after they've had some food, they throw out everything else because they hope that the ship will not run aground. So our passage today picks up from this and it has three sections, right? It's really simple. Shipwreck, snake bite, and serving the islanders. Right, so let's see how the gospel is proclaimed in each of these sections. Now, they have been blown far off course their journey. That's um, uh, the, the, the part that starts before the shipwreck, right? And they don't know where they are. But they see a bay with a beach, right? So that's in, uh, I think, verse C. Yeah, that's in verse 39, right? They notice a bay with a beach and they, and they plan, if possible, to run the ship ashore on the beach. So they cast off the anchors, leave the anchors in the sea and they hoist the foresail to catch the wind and make for the beach. Now, these are, these are actions of desperate men, right? They cast off the anchors. They, 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 they have, these are the sea anchors that they have and they cast them off. So without the anchors, if they don't make it, they will be at the mercy of the winds again. And even if they make it, it will not be possible to continue the journey. They only have a foresail, so no mainsail. They have no anchors to use, and they don't know where they are. So this is do or die for them. Right? This is the situation that they are in. It looks desperate. But actually, we... We who are the readers, we, we know better, right? Because in Acts 23 verse 11, God speaks to Paul, says, The following night the Lord stood by him, stood by Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So we know Paul's going to Rome, right? Okay, but how about the guys on the ship? Well, they should know too. If you look at Acts chapter 27 verses 24 to 26, the angel of the Lord spoke to Paul and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And then Paul takes what God has spoken to him and he tells that to the people on the ship. He says, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have said. But we must run aground on some island. And then in Acts chapter 27, verse 34, says, Therefore I urge you to take some food, it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Now there's a, a bit more drama that happens because they don't run aground on the beach as they planned, uh, but they run, run aground instead on a reef, right? And the stern of the ship is now being broken up by the surf. And so now with no ship, they'll be truly stranded on the island. There is no choice. But even this, if you recall in Acts chapter 27 verse 22, what did Paul say? He said in Acts 27 verse 22, 
Yet now I urge you to take heart. That's what he said to the men. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. In other words, it was predestined that the ship would not make it, but they would make it. Right? So everything is going according to God's plan. There's one more twist. The soldiers now plan to kill the prisoners. That's what it says, right? Um, the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. Why? Because the soldiers knew that if the prisoners escaped and then they got to Rome, the soldiers got to Rome without the prisoners, their lives would be forfeit. They didn't trust Paul's words to them when it came down to it. But amazingly, the centurion intervenes, right? He stops the soldiers from doing this because it says that he wanted to save Paul. His intervention saved Paul's lives and the lives of the other prisoners. And with that, the tension in this first section is resolved, right? Um, the centurion orders those who can swim to jump aboard, swim to shore, and the rest of them to use planks, pieces of the ship, ride the current in to shore. And that section ends in, in verse uh, 44. It says, And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Right? Even in these five verses or so, there's a fair bit of up and down in the circumstances. Right? How might we have interpreted the ups and downs if we were on board the ship? Right? Uh, we might say, oh, things look favorable now. Good wind, island ahead, the bay. Yep, I think God will save us. Then the ship hits the reef. The ship is now breaking apart. We think maybe God has changed his mind. We tend to look at our circumstances and interpret how God feels about us through the circumstances, right? When things go well, we tend to believe God is with us. When things don't go so well, we think this is a sign that maybe God is no longer for us. But in this passage, we see that God is providentially ordering all things, even the unexpected twists and turns, to bring about what he has promised Paul. That there'll be no loss of life among them, but only of the ship. Right? So Paul's life inverts the way that we usually think. Paul knows that God is for him because of the gospel. In the gospel, God has demonstrated that he loves us and is for us. Right? There's a, a, a verse that all of us probably, if we've been to church for a long time, know. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Paul believes that this gospel is true and therefore Paul trusts God to fulfill his promise to bring him to Rome through ups and downs of circumstances. Right? He's looking through God at the ups and downs. Right? Some of you hearing this today may be going through difficult circumstances in life. I, I don't know your life, your situation as you come here this morning. And you look at your circumstances and you may be wondering if God has abandoned you. If perhaps something that you have done or haven't done has caused God to stop loving you. But if this gospel is true, John 3.16, and if you have placed your trust in the God who stands behind this gospel, then you can trust God to walk with you through difficult circumstances. Right? Uh, Jesus died. Next, next slide. Jesus died so that you would be right with God. He was raised so that you would live with God when you put your trust in Him. More than that, Romans 8 actually says, those whom He foreknew, 
we also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that's Jesus, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, Jesus was raised so that he'll be the firstborn among many brothers, who's the brothers? That's us, men and women who put our faith in Jesus. And God says he will make us like Jesus. So, the encouragement here from Romans 8 is to hold on to God because he's holding on to you. Right. Um, Paul is holding on to God in the circumstances. He's looking at the circumstances through God's salvation and through his identity in Christ. Right. And his holding on to God in the midst of these circumstances proclaims the gospel powerfully to those soldiers and sailors on the ship. So that's the shipwreck. Right. And we see how Paul proclaims the gospel in how he responds to the circumstances around him. Let's now turn our, our eye to the next section, which is the snake bite. Right? Uh, so, snake bite, they, they come to the island of Malta, and the native people there show them unusual kindness. Right? They kindle a fire for them, they welcome them, and when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper comes out because of the heat and fastens onto his hand. And when the native people saw this, they said to one another, no doubt, this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So let's pause here in the narrative and observe how the natives interpret the circumstances happening to Paul. Right. First of all, observe. Paul and the sailors and the soldiers, there are 276 of them. That's what uh, it says in verse 37 right, of chapter 27. 276 people make it to shore alive. After a harrowing storm, this is a miracle. It is. And the people on the island, they, they seem to get that this is exceptional. So they show Paul and the rest of the company unusual kindness. But then, Paul gets bitten by a viper. I mean, of all things. You know, the, the commentaries actually say that there are no vipers on Malta. So if Luke is right, I, I'm not sure where the viper came from, but Paul was definitely bitten by a viper, right? And uh, immediately the people conclude, Paul must be a murderer. Hence, even though, even though he managed to escape from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now, some commentaries say that this, this justice, because it's uh, uppercase, is a god that the natives believe in. Now, whether it is a god or the natural principle of justice that the natives believe in, the underlying belief there is that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Sounds familiar? Now, all 276 people have escaped. These guys, these 260, must have done something good to deserve this. Ah, but Paul, he's bitten by a viper. He will surely die. He is no doubt someone who did something really, really bad. But verse 5 of chapter 28 says, Paul shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Right? Now, the, the, the natives don't know that he has suffered no harm, so they are waiting. They are waiting for him to sell up, suddenly fall down dead. But they waited a long time. Nothing happened to Paul. So they changed their mind and said, Paul must be a god. So let's focus on verse 6 of, of chapter 28. When nothing happens to Paul for a long time, they conclude that Paul must be a god. Right? Because good things happen to good people, and this good thing, Paul hasn't fallen down dead. It's such an outstanding good thing, they conclude Paul must be a god. They interpret what has happened to Paul according to their underlying belief system. Now we are like the islanders, I think. You might think they are separated from us by 2,000 years. We have the iPhone. They don't. They can't be like us. But we think like them, right? 
we think that when things are going well in our lives, we should be on okay terms with God. Things are not going well in life, maybe God is not happy with me. We tend to see our relationship with God through the lens of our circumstances, just like the natives judge Paul through what happens to him. In fact, there is a deep irony in the narrative because the natives conclude that Paul must be a god, but they never ask, how could a god be bitten by a viper or end up as a prisoner in the first place? Of course, we know what is happening. Paul cannot die because God has decided that Paul will go to Rome. God has told Paul this several times in Acts. And so we, the readers, we know that God will protect Paul from death of snakebite. More than that, we know that this idea of justice that the natives have is incomplete on this side of heaven. Paul is actually innocent of the charges. In fact, in the previous, previous chapter, Acts 26, verse 32, it concluded with Agrippa, right, the king of the Jews, saying to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But now Paul is going to chains, going to Rome in chains to proclaim this gospel. This unjust suffering that Paul is going through, does this remind you of someone else? The answer's on the slide, right? It's Jesus. Jesus was brought by the Jewish leaders also before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, right, in Luke chapter 23, and accused of misleading the people. And in Luke chapter 23, uh, Pilate says to the Jewish leaders, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I I did not find this man guilty of any of the charges against him. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. But under pressure from the Jews, Pilate gave in and granted the Jews their demand to crucify Jesus. On the day of Jesus' crucifixion, great injustice and evil was done because Jesus was perfect righteousness yet put to death. This was ordained by God because by his death on the cross, Jesus will then pay the price for our sins so that we are set free. Remember John chapter 3 verse 16? God so loved the world, he gave us his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus died so that we would be right with God. He was raised so that we would live with God. Right? So in Luke it says, It is written in the scriptures that the Christ, meaning Jesus, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So God fulfilled justice with the precious, gracious gift of his son to us, and he paid the price himself, a price that none of us can pay. That is why in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, for the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. They shall live because they have put their trust in this gospel. So where is justice then? It is coming. Hebrews 9 says clearly that there is appointed a time for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. At that point in time, we are either looking to Christ, who has made us right with God, and we trust in Christ, or we are looking to ourselves. On this side of heaven today, the gospel is proclaimed, inviting all of us 
to come and believe and be saved from sin because we cannot pay this price ourselves. This gospel is the foundation that undergirds Paul's response. That's why he knows that what God said to him will happen because God has already demonstrated that God is faithful through the gospel. So even this saving him from the viper's bite is a small thing in God's eyes. So Paul did not fear the viper. Verse 5 records that Paul shook off the creature and suffered no harm. It's just one sentence in the account, right? And I just want to say here that Paul's response here is not stoicism, right? It's not like, doesn't, I don't care about this. It's a response that is grounded in deep, deep peace. Right. Paul was settled that God would lead him to Rome. He rested in God's providence. The God who had protected him through the trials, through the assassins, if you remember Acts 23, through the storm, who had saved him from sin and death, surely is able to deliver him from a snake bite. And Philippians 4, which Paul wrote later after this, speaks of this deep peace that Paul has, a peace from God that surpasses understanding that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's response of deep peace in the midst of misfortune suffering proclaims the gospel. Friends, are there things in your life that make you feel anxious? Uh, this week, the PSRE has started. Understandably, many parents may be anxious if your kid is in P6. Uh, Paul wrote to the Philippian church in Philippians 4 and encouraged them to bring whatever makes them anxious to God with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, so that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So this idea of, of bringing your, your anxieties to God uh, proclaims the gospel and also gives us a peace uh, that comes from God. And that's Paul's response and that's how we see that happening here, how our actions in response to the circumstances proclaims the gospel. Let's go to the next section, um, but just let's look at verse 6 first. In verse 6, the natives think at first that Paul was bitten because he's a murderer, and when he doesn't die, they change their minds and say that he's a god. Now Luke does not record that Paul disputes what the natives say, but we can be quite certain that Paul would deny he's a god. Right? In Acts chapter 14, when Paul is in Lystra and he heals a man crippled from birth, the people there in the city say that he's Hermes, and Barnabas, who is another apostle traveling with Paul, uh, they say that he's Zeus, and the crowds want to worship them. Now, in that account, Paul and Barnabas tear their garments, cry out to the crowds to stop, saying that they are not gods but men, and plead with the crowds to turn from vain things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth. Now, now in this verse, we say here that even though the people say that he's a god, there is no worship offered to Paul. Right. So it is almost certain that Paul explains the situation to the natives and proclaims the gospel to them in, in the three months that he spends with them. So the natives and indeed the sailors and the soldiers for the island, they all get to hear the gospel and see the gospel lift up before them, before Caesar. The Caesar, you know, he was going to hear the gospel, but he was not like top, top priority this year. He hears it towards the end. These guys heard it first. So now we look at verses 7 to 10. What happens in the three months that he's there? Well, um, Paul and the rest of the company are hosted for three days by Publius, the chief man of the island. It so happens that the father of Publius is sick with fever and dysentery. 
So Paul visits him, prays for him, puts his hands upon him, and heals him. Word spreads, and the rest of the people on the island where Jesus came to Paul, and they were cured. Of course, Paul and the rest of the company, they are stranded on the island since their ship is gone. So actually, they have no idea how long they're going to be there. But God provides a ship three months later, which we'll see in next week's sermon. And the people honor them really as they leave, putting on board whatever they needed. That's how the, the passage ends. The one sentence summary of these verses will be that Paul, the prisoner who has suffered injustice for more than two years, sees the needs of the people and heals them. Uh, he heals them and not just heals them. I think it is almost certain that Paul preaches the gospel to them. Luke doesn't have to write this down for Theophilus. Theophilus can read between the lines. He has read all the preceding chapters of Acts. He knows that Paul will certainly preach the gospel to them. In fact, Theophilus can maybe even visit Malta and ask the people for himself. In his response, Paul is simply obeying Jesus uh, to serve those in need. He sees the suffering of others and proclaims the gospel to them. And the gospel brings healing, and this is a sign of the gospel being preached. So, in a way, what we see in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, which is what Jesus read in the temple, in a way, Paul is healing the, 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 the natives on the island, and as he heals them, the idea is that the gospel is being preached, and it brings restoration. Right? So, serving the community with love and grace proclaims the gospel. Paul doesn't say, because I'm suffering, I'm a prisoner, I'm in justice, you guys just deal with this on your own. No, he, he heals them, he reaches out to them, he proclaims the gospel to them. So we see in these three snippets, right, shipwreck, snake bite, serving, that we proclaim the gospel with words and also with our lives. And in this passage, we see that holding on to God in the ups and downs of life proclaims the gospel to those around us. Bring our anxieties to God, praying, also proclaims the gospel to those around us because they will see and ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And finally, serving the community with love and grace, even when you are suffering, proclaims the gospel to those around us. Some of you might be like me and you will say, Ah, but this is Paul. Paul is an apostle. I am Joe Average. I have failed God too many times. But look at what God did. Oh, sorry, look at what God did with Paul. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna have some time with Peter, right? With Paul, with Peter, with Thomas, and with John. Now, I don't mean to say that these guys are not good, right? But God did amazing things with Paul, with Peter, with Thomas, with John, with many of the saints before us. Don't focus on ourselves. Don't focus on yourself. To to believe that God cannot transform you because you are too bad. It's actually a form of perverse boasting, isn't it? But focus on God. The hope of the gospel is not just that God has forgiven you of your sins, past, present, and future. More than that, the hope of the gospel is that Jesus is fiercely committed to making you like him, and he will do it. Right? Praise God that God will do in each of us what he justifies us to be in Christ. That's why Paul, who called himself the worst of sinners, did not despair. For he knew that God can and will transform the worst of sinners. So I started this uh, sermon with a question about can we know Paul, right? Ignore the part of this 50, right? Like, can we know Paul? And uh, the answer is, yeah, we can. Luke has drawn 
back the curtain and we see that Paul proclaims the gospel with words and also with his life. Away from the limelight, this proclamation of the gospel still continues. I want to turn to Luke as we close. Luke is like the invisible man. He's Paul's traveling companion, a witness to the proceedings. And Luke is also Paul's friend. And Luke faithfully records what he witnessed and in so doing, proclaimed the gospel to us and to himself. You see, Luke was a recipient. Right? Paul's life, Paul's speeches proclaimed the gospel to Luke. Luke was encouraged by Paul. Luke recorded what he saw and in so doing, proclaimed the gospel to us. For sure. So my question to us is, do you have a Luke in your life? Can you be a Luke to someone here at the ECP? Being a Luke is simply being a friend in Christ, right? Walking with someone in their walk with Christ. Seeing them, encouraging them, and actually being encouraged. Because as I am a witness to your walk in Christ, and I see how you respond and how you proclaim the gospel with your life, I will be encouraged. Right? So we all need Luke's in our life. Many sermons have been written on Paul and Timothy and the mentoring relationship. But there is, I would like to suggest to us, a place for Luke's in our life. Maybe you feel bad about asking, uh, or you feel there's too much in your life you'd rather other people don't know. But as you can see, Luke was very encouraged by Paul. And Luke's witness of life, of Paul's life, in Acts, has now encouraged us today. And perhaps God will do something similar through you. Perhaps you look around at the ECP and you see many people and you are not sure who is connected and who is not connected. Can you be a look to someone here at the ECP? The ECP is not very old. We are coming to, up to our first year anniversary. So those of us who have been attending regularly here for six months or longer or who are already members at the ECP for even longer time, six months or more, you are like, seniors, right? You have been here a long time. You are, I don't know, what's the proper term? That's not, uh, you know. Basically, you have, you have, I don't know, um, I don't know, uh, time, time rights. Right? You've been here for a long time. Can I encourage those of you who have been here for a long time to, to initiate the conversation, right? Now, that, let's be clear. Don't, don't approach someone and say, can I be a Luke? That, that, that's quite, uh, you know, that's quite intimidating. Start with a coffee, but hear each other's journey with Christ. And I promise you, you will both be encouraged. We all need looks in our life so that we can proclaim the gospel to them, so that we can be encouraged, so that we can encourage other people. Alright, so that's, that's X. That's shipwreck, snake bite, and serving. So let's go to God in prayer. Uh, dear God, we, we thank you for these passages here. We thank you that you call us not just to proclaim the gospel with words, but also that our lives would a testimony of the goodness of the gospel. And we pray, Father, that um, what we see here in Acts would remind us to use our lives as a testimony for the gospel. Father, we cannot do this alone. We need Luke's in our life. We need people to walk with us, to encourage us, to bear witness, and to remind us of the gospel again and again. And so awkward as it may be, difficult as it may be, I pray for every one of us here that we would, that you would give us the courage to find looks in our life here among the ECP, and in so doing, help us to, um, help us to grow together uh, in the likeness of Christ.
Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're now going to move into a time of uh, communion. And I realize that uh, I have not brought the elements with me, but I'll do that now. Once again, thank you. Uh, C.S. Lewis said um, he believed in Christianity because uh, it is like the light from the sun. By it, you see everything else in life. And I think this passage today that we've gone through is the same thing. Let's not look at our circumstances, but look at God and then interpret our circumstances through the lens of a God who loves us. Communion is, is for Christians, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus and the gospel. For those of you who have heard this summer today and you want to find out more about this gospel and what it means, encourage you to come after the service, speak to Aiden, speak to myself. Uh, but for us who are Christians, let us um, treasure this communion. In a few moments I'll read for us uh, from the passage. Um, scripture tells us that before we take communion, it is wise, it is good to examine ourselves. And so I want to encourage us to take some time before God, to just go to God in, in silent uh, reflection and self-examination. Uh, this morning we have heard a passage that talks about how we are called to proclaim the gospel with words and with our lives. And if we are honest, uh, we, we know that we fall far short of this. When things go bad, we are so tempted to take our eyes off God uh, instead of holding on to God. We are so tempted to try harder instead of bringing our anxieties to God. We are so tempted to turn inwards uh, instead of continuing to serve and looking to God to provide strength and to provide love, and to provide healing for ourselves. So can I encourage you to go to God as you think about this, and think about where we have fallen short. Uh, and then I'll be praying for us and leading us through a time of assurance because of this communion that we have. So let's go to God. Silent reflection. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.